So we're talking today about journey's end. So if you get to the end of the journey, there's usually a celebration. It's usually a really good time, and you, and you have fun getting at the end of it. Um, but it's the process. It's the getting there. It's the hanging in there in the process. Now, you may do different things. Anybody here run marathons? Got some marathon runners? Well, good for you. We have a lot of healthy. Oh, no, we got one person with bad knees in the back. No, we've got your marathon. Do you really? Yeah, you do. Because I ran a marathon. <laughs> well, marathon people, and, and then a tri- any triathletes? Anybody? There we go. There we go. Really? You were a triathlete? All right. Good for you, Becca. So we've got triathletes. We've got people, or people that hike. Hikers? People like to go on long journeys hiking. Yeah, we've got some people there. So you go on hiking. You go biking. We've had some people I know Stan used to bike and Carolyn. There's a lot of people that do a lot of different things. Or it may just be a long walk. Or it may be, you know, you're in the car and the kids keep saying, when are we going to go to the bathroom, Mommy? You know, and it just seems like you're never going to get to the end of that trip, right? Journey's end. And one of the things that keeps you going is when you think about what it will be like when you get to the end of the journey. You know, you think what it's going to be like when I get to the end of the journey, when we finish, when we have a celebration. And if somebody can come along and say, just, just hang in there because this is what it's going to be like, that keeps you going, right? And that's what gets us to journey's end. So that's what we're going to be talking about today because Psalm chapter 23, verses 5 through 6 is all about journey's end. Now, last week we talked about verses 1 through 4, and the reason we're covering Psalm 23 is because we've been doing a series on the early life of King David, one of the great figures in the Bible, and these are stories about him long before he was rich and famous. David was called in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, Israel's singer of songs. I mean, he was a balladeer. He was a singer. He was, he was the man for writing music, and probably, possibly some melodies too, but we've lost the melodies. However, we retained the words, and they're recorded for us, the lyrics are recorded for us as poetry in what book in the Bible? Psalms, the book of Psalms. The one has a P first, but it's, and then an S, but it's pronounced Psalms. And the most famous psalm is Psalm 23. And so we chose it, one, because it's the most famous psalm, And two, because even though it was probably written years later, it kind of harkens back to his past. And David pulls from his past when he was a young shepherd boy, and he kind of builds some some incredible imagery for us in the psalm. And at the beginning, he says that Yahweh is his shepherd. Yahweh is God's personal, intimate name. So the God of the universe is his shepherd. But we can also tie that in to John chapter 10, verse 11, where it says, who else is our good shepherd? Who's called the good shepherd? Jesus is, right? So Jesus is our good shepherd. And there's this kind of this interplay where it goes back and forth between talking about God, our Father in heaven, and God, the the Son, Jesus. And he goes back and forth. And he is the shepherd, just as David had been a shepherd. And he understood being a shepherd. And if he's the shepherd, then who are we? Hate to say it, folks, but we're the lowly sheep, you know, who were really considered and are still one of the most ignorant, we'll say it in gentle terms, of all animals. And so that's us. And we're completely dependent on the shepherd if we want to get the journey's end. And so all last week we're talking about all the ways that he gets us there. And he makes sure that we eat well and that we, uh, that we drink the water that we need to refresh us, that we rest, that we get refreshment, that we get strength, that we make wise decisions, that we stay close to him. And we may even go through, in fact, we will go through those valleys of the shadow of darkness. 
we will go through those tough times, but he'll get us through. He'll help us. He'll support us. He'll guide us. He'll protect us and get us finally to journey's end. And so today, we're at journey's end, or we're getting near to journey's end, and we're looking at the future, what it's going to be like when we finish this journey. And we'll see a couple surprising things that happen. The first thing we've already seen, in verse 1, David refers to Yahweh as my shepherd. But in verse 4, he refers to him as you. He goes from an impersonal to a personal pronoun. And I think there's something going on there because what's happening is the more he's spending time with the shepherd on the journey, he's getting to know him, right? And he's getting closer. And now, now they're really becoming friends. And they're really getting close to each other. Another transformation is about to take place. Imagine this. You get to journey's end and the shepherd turns around. And there he stands, this rugged man, dirty hair and a scraggly beard and weathered face. And he, and he has this old cloak and he hands, holds in one hand his, his staff and the other hand his club. And as you look at him, all of a sudden he changes before your eyes. And you can't believe your eyes because he's beginning to look different and all of a sudden you see standing before you this powerful man standing before you erect and majestic with beautiful clothing on him with a scepter in a hand and a crown on his head and a trimmed beard and a twinkle in his eye and he has now been transformed into the king of heaven and then something else happens that's even as remarkable maybe more so that is that you lose lose your your wool your wool is sheared off of you and once it's taken off you're not a sh not sheep anymore you become a human being. And in fact, you become a princess or a prince of the kingdom of heaven. I think the transition that will take place between us as human beings on earth and us and human beings in heaven will be as dramatic as the change from sheep to humanity. It will be a whole new world. And so that's the stage that is going to be set for us today as Yahweh is no longer our shepherd, but Yahweh becomes our host. And so today in verses 5 through 6, we will look at Yahweh is my host. The first thing we'll learn is that he prepares a table for me in verse 5. And it reads, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Yahweh, the king of heaven, swings open these giant doors to his temple, to his house, to his palace, so to speak. And we stand before him and we look out and there's a table set. And it, and it goes the length of this room and beyond. Kind of like the Wani's. You ever see those big, the big table in Awanis in Yosemite? Have you ever walked in there? And it's just like this table that goes on forever and ever. And it's it's set up with not just pretty designs and stuff and centerpieces, but what men especially appreciate, food, right? You know, I mean, it's the real deal. Give me the food. Keep the centerpiece. You know what I mean? And, it, and it's looking good. And this thing is just magnificent. Now, the picture of the table, as you can understand, quickly becomes a picture of a banquet. What he's saying is there's a banquet, and the banquet is in your honor, perhaps really in the honor of more than just you but others, but, it's, but you're one of the people that are being honored on this very special occasion. Now, why 
would a king honor somebody? The primary reason they would in a situation like this is if they were another king under them. In other words, if this is the supreme king and he's got kings under him, what they, in a feudal kingdom, they'd have vassal kings, and so they would, they would honor them. But I think scholars are really, really wise when they look at this from the perspective of the New Testament. Because if you were to go, and you can look at this later, but Romans 8, 15 through 17, Romans 8, 15 through 17 ties in perfectly with this passage. In that passage, it says that God is our Abba, Father. That's a term of endearment in Hebrew. He's our, our Papa, Daddy. There it is. He's our Papa, Daddy, it says here. And, and we are essentially adopted by him. See, we are brought about, he's brought about our adoption as sons and daughters of his kingdom. And it goes on to tell us that we are going to be co-heirs with Jesus. Is that, is that awesome? So what is actually happening here is our father, the king, is throwing a banquet for his children, his princes, and his princesses. Just like a parent on earth might throw a big birthday party, a special birthday party for their child, or they might throw a party for their graduation or for their wedding or for some other occasion. So the king of heaven is showing the, throwing the biggest party ever for his children. Now, the, the, I sometimes think there are probably going to be a lot of big parties in heaven, but there appears to be one special meal that this is um, particularly alluding to. And it goes on and it says that it will be in the presence of our enemies. How exciting is that? I mean, it's almost like you go, what is... What is he doing here? I'm not going in. I'll stay out. Why in the world would you want to have a party and invite your enemies? Hasn't that one ever bothered you before? I mean, you wonder, this is one of those scribal errors in the Bible, right? There's got to be something wrong. I think it's a picture of, of this that we expect, we expect, our friends, to praise us and love us. We don't expect that from our enemies, do we? The greatest praise and recognition you can receive is from an enemy or from a rival. Ever think about that? Those are the ones that, you know, it really matters with. I was reading, recently there was a review, I just was looking behind Parade Magazine or something, I was just kind of flashing through, and they had a little write-up on a new book on Tip O'Neill, uh, the very powerful uh, Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives in the 1980s. And it was very interesting because they talked about the relationship that he had with President Ronald Reagan. And he would invite Reagan. He had so much respect for Reagan, his rival, that he would invite him to meals and have him as the guest of honor. And Reagan would say of O'Neill, I've never known a man I disagreed with more that I liked more. And when Reagan was almost assassinated and lay in his bed in the hospital, Tip O'Neill, a big bear of a man, went into the hospital, knelt on his knees, held the president's hand, prayed with him, recited, I believe, um, they recited together um, this psalm, Psalm 23, and O'Neill kissed him on the forehead before he left. Washington could use some of that nonpartisanship these days, couldn't it? Um, but what a beautiful picture of two men who in one sense hated each other's guts but respected each other as men. And it means so much more 
that your enemy would come visit you in the hospital than it would the people that you would expect to. Doesn't it? Doesn't that have kind of a picture there? So I think it's kind of that picture of God's going to set it right. And they're going to be there sitting and saying, yeah, we were wrong. You were right. And we respect you. And we want to set the record straight. Here's where it gets confusing, though, to me. When we go to heaven, the people that are going to heaven are the people who are followers of the shepherd, people who are followers of the king of heaven. So how could it be that we would have enemies there? You ever thought about that? Who would the enemies be? Is it even possible that brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, princesses and princesses, could ever be enemies with one another? Sadly enough, it's true. It even happens in the Bible. If you read the Bible, you see it time and again that people are followers of Christ, followers of God in the Old Testament. They turn against each other. They hurt each other. How could that be true? Remember the saying, you only hurt the ones you love? Oftentimes, we, we have more conflicts with people we spend time with. The people that are on the outside, you can talk all sorts of bad trash about them, but usually you don't spend a whole lot of time with them. It's the people you spend the most time with, the people that you engage with the most, and oftentimes the people you love the most are the ones that you hurt the most. And if the Bible is true and the, no gate to, the, the, the road to heaven is narrow and few people are really committed, especially if you look at uh, Matthew 13 and the, the sower of the seeds, and Jesus paints this picture that, the, the minority are going to be those that are really committed to follow Christ. And so it would make sense that there are those that are maybe more mature in their faith who will do things that are harmful to those that are more mature. So those things are going to happen. The good news is that God will set the record straight one day. The bad news is, is if you're the one he's going to set the record straight with. I think it's one of the reasons why, especially at communion time, we're reminded regularly to make sure that our heart is right and that we've set it right with others. If there's anybody that you have a bad relationship with, you need to make sure you do what you can to make amends. Sometimes you can't do anything and sometimes it's not the right time, but that's something you need to pray for, that, that whole reconciliation. And then you also need to recognize this because it's it just a fact. We've all done something wrong. And I think in the end we'll all eat humble pie to some degree, we'll all have to apologize for things we've done wrong. And the beauty of this passage more than anything else to me is not that people will say, yeah, you know, I, I, you were right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. But that it'll all be over and we'll be at peace with everybody. We'll be, there will be no more enemies. And that's really what's happening here is you'll sit at the seat with your enemies because they won't be enemies anymore. Everybody will be at peace with one another. You won't have any enemies anymore. Isn't that a neat feeling? He says, you'll anoint my head with oil. I can't wait for that. I've always wanted that, right? Doesn't that seem kind of creepy to some of you maybe? God, anoint my head with oil. Keep your fingers off of my scalp. But in a culture where they didn't have showers, they didn't have perfume. You know, they didn't have anything that smelled good like that. This wasn't oil like at the gas station. This is olive oil that had some perfume in it. So it would feel really good and really comfortable. 
and um, you know you could you could feel that olive oil and it would and would it would smell good and it would feel good and it was a way of, of honoring you and saying you are our special guest tonight. What's up, man? <laughs> he just this guy he's. Every once in a while, he just has to get one of those in. He gets excited. <laughs> it's just, it's in his contract. He's allowed to do that. So, <laughs> so, um, so it's really neat to see how God um, just takes care of us and he honors us. But then it says that he, he has this cup that overflows. And really, that's a picture of just in those days, it's like the cup that overflows is just the best meal you could ever have, a great, entertaining, wonderful meal. Have you ever had a meal someplace where every time you sat down the drink, they filled it? I think I ate at a place like that once and only once. I don't, it was like, it was amazing. The service was so incredible. You set your drink down. It's almost like, just leave it alone. I'm done. I'm done. But they just kept serving you and serving you and more and more food. And it's going to be, you know, angels will probably be serving us. We'll be sitting at the table with people that we've read about all and heard about all of our lives. We'll be reunited with loved ones. And the Lord himself will be at the table. Now, there will be at least one major meal like this, and it's prophetically talked about most extensively in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. Isaiah talks about what this meal will be like. He says, on this mountain, he's referring to Mount Zion or Jerusalem, Yahweh Almighty will prepare um, a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine with no fear of anybody getting drunk. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Yahweh will wipe away the tears from all faces, he will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Yahweh has spoken. He's going to make everything right with everybody. That pretty cool thought. That's the picture that David lays before us at Journey's End. That's what we're aiming for. That's where we want to get. And so then he shifts a little bit and he says, His, his goodness and love will follow me in verse 6. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Goodness and love. God is a God who is great, but not only is he great, but he's good. He's not just powerful, but he cares about us immensely, more than we would care for ourselves. And the word love here is a word that speaks of loyalty. He's made a covenant with us. He's made an agreement with us, and he will be faithful with us to the very end. And the word for follow is a very interesting word because it's better rendered pursues. God pursues us. And the word was usually used for how a bad guy pursues us. And it just talks about the intensity of God coming after us. Um, some think that this may have inspired the famous poem, the, the Hound of Heaven. God is after us, after us. He's not going to let us go. Talk about a helicopter parent. Right? He's always there. As a parent, have you ever felt like you wished you could do more for your kids? You feel like, I, I'm trying my hardest, but I never seem to be able to do enough. You want to step in sometimes and you know that it's the wrong time to step in. I remember, I remember the first time our kids got bullied. It was my son got bullied. And, and guess where he got bullied? <laughs> Sunday school. 
I was a pastor, and I was upset, you know, that, you know, the warrior comes out of me. And I, I was like, I was telling my wife, I said, we, we got to go talk to that teacher, you know. And she said, well, you know, she didn't even know about it. Well, you know, we've got to, you know, I, I've got to talk to that kid. Well, he's just a kid. Well, I'll talk to his dad then, you know. I'll, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to get, and she's like, you know, honey, <laughs> just, these are, this is not that big a deal. Um, but I wanted to do something, and I couldn't. And it, it drove me practically nuts, you know, Frank, you know, my son worked it out, you know, I would give him, you know, talk, he worked, worked the whole deal out, but it really upset me, and it was the beginning of many times like that, where as my kids get older, I want to help them, and I, and I, I can't do anything, and there are sometimes I could help them, and they say, no, we don't want help, you know, okay, and aren't those times hard? God is our Father, He can always help us, and He's never in the way. Are you willing to let him? Are you going to ask him? Will you run to him or will you run from him? And that's the picture here. And if we go to him, he wants to take care of us. For how long? For as long as you live on earth and for all of eternity. That's a pretty long time. The journey takes a divergent trail at this point and it, and it branches into two I don't know if you've noticed the first is he's talking about those that are still alive us in this room and the second he's talking about what it's going to be like when we live in heaven we're not there yet but it's almost like when you're running in the race or whatever and they show like a big screen and you see a big screen of everybody celebrating at the end and you say, oh, that's what it's going to be like. You're running by, and, you're, and they have a big screen out, and there they are. They're there at the end of the, the race. You're going to go there. And, and, and that's kind of, it's kind of picturing it for us. And there's this sense, by the way, that you can enter into heaven today. David did. He had a glimpse of heaven. And I believe it may have been on a, uh, an evening where he was praying, and the sheep were were down and there wasn't any trouble and he began to pray and he sensed suddenly it was as if he was in God's house. He was in his courts. He was on his grounds. It was as Yahweh would at one point tell Moses, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. He felt suddenly the presence of God in a powerful way. And even though he hadn't gotten to heaven yet, he was in heaven. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever had a glimpse of heaven? You ever had a powerful experience in prayer where you sense God's presence as if he had his hand on your shoulder? I remember praying as a boy for the first time, getting down on my knees and asking God in my life when I was about eight years of age before my bed, and I just sensed God's presence in a powerful way. I remember jumping up and down in my dorm room in my early teens saying to God, I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, as I was praying, and suddenly it, it made, made sense to me. I remember eating, you know, carpet on my face, praying in my grandmother's, grandparents' home, trying to decide what I was going to do with my life, and getting up with the firm assurance in my mind that God wanted me to uh, get married, and to carry, and to go to seminary. I remember times laughing with God, crying with God, time when we're just alone, and, I, and even today, I think, and, you know, some of the most powerful times have been through the valley of the shadow of death when I've gone through difficult times as we talked about last week. 
But there are times even today I think, you know, the best part of almost every day is just time with God. Where it just slows me down and relaxes me. And vigor. Sometimes I'm so tired and I pray and all of a sudden I have energy. Sometimes I'm so down and depressed and then I pray and I'm encouraged. You know, but that time with God is so precious for each of us. And sometimes it's that time with other people. One of the most powerful experiences I've ever had is when we took communion together at Miwok Village. Joey surprised us, and he, we, we got together for our first meeting together to start the church, and, and uh, Joey said, let's have communion. And he brought the elements, and it was just such a powerful experience for me with the guys to spend time together and, and sense God's presence in, in an incredible way. You know one of the most incredible ways that you can experience God's presence weekly? is through worship. Now think about that. Worship is an odd animal, and it's not just Mitch that is going with his crazy stories and so forth. Mitch says, you know, sing along with Mitch. Does anybody remember Sing Along with Mitch? There was an old TV program. Some of us remember that long ago. We still, I'm still saying, I sang with him when I was a little boy. Oh, can I sing with Mitch tonight? You know, and now I'm still singing with Mitch. Um, <laughs> but but Mitch and his group do such, an, such a great job in deflecting things. You know, not, it's not about them. You, know, you can go to a concert and you're singing, but you're, not, you're really concentrating on the group. Even sometimes Christian concerts, you may be praising, but the tendency is you're there for the group and you're watching their instrumental abilities, you're wa- listening to them, you're remembering their songs. But, but when you're in church, you're here because these guys are, are, are turning your attention to God. And they're creating a glimpse of heaven in this room. And I know people come to me and they say, I get so emotional, I can't understand it. I don't understand. It doesn't happen. I'm not that emotional of a person, but when I'm in church and uh, they're leading worship, it's, it's powerful. It's like I'm actually talking to God. And I'm experiencing God in a way that I can't explain. And there's really nothing else like it in the world. We take it for granted. But where else do you really worship the way we worship? Where you talk to the living God through music and songs written for him in the way that we do. It's really unique. I mean, in other religions do some things that are somewhat similar, but not really. Not, nothing, nothing like we do. Um, and that's very powerful. And it's, it's almost a, there's a sense of the supernatural about it. I don't know if, you know, we kind of take it for granted. So we need to do those things. We need to worship God, and we need to, to be involved worshiping him together. We need to, to pray together. We need to spend that time together because it's one of those deals where quantity equals quality. The more time you do it, the more you grow into it, and the more meaningful it is to you. A psalmist other than David, in Psalm 84, verse 10, the beginning of it, he said, um, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Think of that. Better to spend one day with God alone than to spend a thousand days on Maui or in Paris or in some other place that's really exciting to you up in the mountains. Kelly and Vince, up in the mountains. Hunting deer. We're just talking about that today. You know, wherever it is, that's your paradise. Better one day with God, though, than better than those days. It's that much better. Isn't that incredible that it could be that wonderful with God? But it is. And then he concludes by saying that this is something that should happen for us forever. 
It's never supposed to end. We will one day be with God, and then we will never leave again. And I, I think this is, is so neat what he says because it ties in. And this is interesting. Did you know that the New Testament, you know, the Old Testament is like, like two parts. Part one is Psalm 23. Part two, there's a conclusion. There's, a, there's an ending to Psalm 23. And it's found in Revelation chapter 7 verses 15 through 17. It says, Therefore, there before the throne of God. We are before the throne of God now. And we are, have the privilege to serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, Jesus is the one who sits on the throne, will spread his tent over us. His, we will be part of his, his house. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. Why? Because they've reached journey's end. For the Lamb at the center, that's Jesus, of the throne will be their what? Their shepherd. And now listen to the words. He will lead them to springs of living water. And it adds, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 